So Stephen Greenblatt is the Kogan University Professor of the Humanities at Harvard University. He's also the general editor of the Northern Anthology of English Literature and of the Norton, the Norton Shakespeare. Professor Greenblatt is the author of numerous books, I think 13 in total, including The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve. Some of you may have come to his talk. The Swerve, How the World Became Modern, which was awarded both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. Shakespeare's Freedom and Will in the World, How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare. He has edited collections of criticism, including Cultural Mobility, a manifesto, and is founding co-editor of the journal Representations. Professor Greenblatt is a past president of the Modern Language Association of America and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Philosophical Society, and the American Academy of Arts and Letters. His honors also include the 2016 Holberg Prize from the Norwegian Parliament, the Modern Language Association's James Russell Lowell Prize, and the Distinguished Humanist Award from the Mellon Foundation. Tonight, Professor Greenblatt's talk is titled Tyrant, Shakespeare on Politics. In an era suffering from fragile institutions, warring political classes, populist anger, rampant falsehoods, and spectacular indecency, Shakespeare shone a spotlight on the twisted consequences of tyranny. His uncanny insight remains vital to us today. Please join me in welcoming Stephen Greenblatt to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you all. Thank you for being here. I'm grateful to you. Thank you for the gracious introduction. Uh, it's a double pleasure, uh, always a pleasure to be here, but doubly so because uh, some of you may also have been at my wife's uh, book event, Rami Targoff, who gave uh, a talk presenting her book, Renaissance Woman. Uh, and uh, I have then the special pleasure of talking about a Renaissance man uh, in her company. Um, I want to begin, though, by talking about, before I'll read you a little bit from my book, I want to begin by talking about uh, an experience I had in 1987, a long time ago. Uh, I was invited to give the uh, keynote address to the annual Shakespeare Tage, as they're called, the Shakespeare Days, uh, of the Deutsche Shakespeare Gesellschaft, the German Shakespeare Society, in Weimar, in what was then the GDR, the German Democratic Republic, East Germany. Uh, it was during the Cold War. Uh, I was uh, uh, taken to the Elephant Hotel, a beautiful old hotel in Weimar, uh, where the desk clerk said that as the special guest that year of the Deutsche Shakespeare Gesellschaft, I would be given uh, the room that Hitler and Eva Braun used to uh, stay in, <laughs> had a little balcony, uh, and apparently uh, the Fuhrer would uh, go onto the balcony and the crowds, or be, the crowds would gather under the balcony and chant, 
Liebe Führer, komm heraus aus dem Elefantenhaus. Dear Führer, come out, out of the Elephant House. It was a kind of Mel Brooks, how cute you are, you little Führer, uh, uh, chant, and, and then he would appear before them. So I uh, puzzled the clerk by saying that I think I didn't want to stay in that room. I'd take a more modest uh, one. Um, then I went out to um, the, the march for uh, what they call a Kranzniederlegung, a, a wreath-laying ceremony at the Shakespeare Memorial in uh, the quite beautiful park uh, in Weimar. And there were speeches of a, of a somewhat predictable kind for the period, saying that just as Ronald, uh, just as, as Prospero uh, gives up his uh, special magic powers in the Tempest, so Ronald Reagan should give up Star Wars and so forth and so on. I mean, that, that uh, was that moment. Uh, but the thing that I most remember uh, from the experience was in the evening there was a student performance of Hamlet, a uh, German student group performing Hamlet. Uh, overall, no better maybe than it should have been, but it was a performance that was very much in touch with the fact that Hamlet, as you may remember, is a play actually about students and full of students. Uh, the central character, Hamlet himself, but then uh, was a student at Wittenberg, but then uh, his friend Horatio, his friends Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, all uh, students, and students particularly studying abroad. And it called attention, the, the production called attention to this fact with a bit of stage business that's not obviously in the script. Uh, when Laertes, uh, yet another student, comes to the king to ask for permission to return to Paris. Uh, the king turns to Laertes' father, Polonius, and asks if uh, Polonius has granted permission. Polonius says yes, and then the king turns in this, turned in this production to a huge desk that was on the stage, uh, and he opened a drawer of the desk, and he took out a passport to give to Laertes to return to Paris, and the entire audience gasped. And then I looked around and everyone's face was completely impassive and blank, as if no sound had been made. And of course I understood why, uh, because Shakespeare ha was then and has been for uh, a very long time uh, a place in which people can talk about things that are risky uh, to talk about outside in a different, uh, more open environment. And I experienced that again uh, only a few years ago in 2014 when I was invited to speak to the first and probably last Iranian Shakespeare conference uh, in Tehran. Uh, and on that occasion I not only was the uh, beneficiary of the quite lovely hospitality uh, of my academic hosts but also of the very intense questions uh, asked in the public event uh, by the students who were articulate and very well informed. Do you believe, they asked, uh, do, they asked me, do you believe that Bolingbroke's revolution, as they called it, in Richard II, was actually intended to establish a better, more just society, or was it finally only a cynical uh, seizure of wealth and power? Um, how does Shakespeare, they ask, think that certain thugs, thieves, murderers, liars, hypocrites uh, rise to positions of authority? And how can they be defeated? 
Is there any hope uh, in Macbeth or at the end of The Tempest or in Lear that there'll be a better society uh, after the one that falls and so forth and so on? And the questions stayed and my answers stayed entirely uh, on the subject of Shakespeare and they were the questions were relevant always to Shakespeare, but again, we all understood what was going on in the room. Uh, and it was the case and has there and has been the case in other circumstances, such as the one I began by describing, that in, even in highly repressive societies, a uh, certain area, particularly around Shakespeare and other artists, is allowed open to voice things that can't be voiced elsewhere, as long as they're not too open. I actually made a terrible mistake, uh, which I genuinely regret. When I got back from uh, Tehran, I wrote an account of my visit, and I published it in the New York Review of Books, and it was an admiring account of the people I had met and of the students uh, and of their, their uh, energy and intelligence. But I hadn't sort of taken in that because of the digital world that we live in, the, the essay would immediately be circulated in, uh, in Iran. And it excited uh, a, a very vehement pushback against me for being a, a CIA agent, a Mossad agent, a closet, wicked Zionist and a, a provocateur, and so forth. Not because I said anything in the article other than what I just told you, but because I did what I shouldn't have done. I would say I genuinely regret this, which is that I tore the opaque screen that everyone knew was there. The people who attacked me knew the screen was there as well at the time. But as long as the screen wasn't torn, it was fine. But once there was just a little rent in it, it produced this, this very intense pushback, very I won't go into it, but very uh, uh, disagreeable. Um, so that's the how slightly distant background to the book that I've written, because I'm interested in the way in which Shakespeare has functioned, uh, functioned in his own times politically and has functioned afterwards. Uh, and the mo more immediate background is that in August of uh, 2016, I was growing increasingly nervous about actually already in July, I was growing increasingly nervous about the outcome of an election that the American newspapers had announced was already over and decided with. But I, I had noticed going back and forth to Vermont, where we have a place that even after um, the nomination had gone to the candidate uh, who ran uh, for president, uh, Bernie Sanders signs were not taken down and not replaced by Hillary signs, and I thought that's funny. And then there weren't many, many Hillary signs in Cambridge, Massachusetts either, even in 02138 where I live. Uh, and I, having taken in what this meant, I began to grow increasingly uh, concerned that people might actually vote for the Green Party candidate, for example, or not vote. Uh, so I wrote something, a little piece in the, I sent it in August to the uh, New York Times as an op-ed about Richard III, uh, and the New York Times turned it down. 
uh, and they wrote me a nice note saying they'd really published enough about the uh, uh, election. They thought that there was no, no further interest uh, in it. You remember those are the days in which there was that little dial on the, on the New York Times that said it was a 98, 94, 97, 98% chance uh, the, of the election. So the, the editor at the Times very kindly said that if I wanted, if I hadn't published it elsewhere and I wanted to send it back to them in October, they might, re be closer to the election, they might reconsider. So I did send it back. and. They did publish it, and it was a happy event in the sense that it went viral and was circulated. Some they, they keep track of this kind of thing, of course, and it was circulated by email several hundred thousand times within 48 hours. Um, and they were surprised, and I was pleased. But of course, it made no difference uh, in the outcome. But it was uh, because, as you know, the the in fact, in this case, the the roughly whatever it was, 70,000 votes that went for Jill Stein actually made the difference in who was going to win the election and not. I mean, anyway, it was utopian idea that, uh, but it was the immediate occasion for my sitting down and starting to write and thinking about, write things that I had been thinking about, as I say, at least since 1987. Okay, about what Shakespeare thought um, the politics in his world uh, were. Uh, about how uh, he thought that catastrophic leaders could possibly come uh, to power against all what against all expectation, but also against uh, what looked like the interest of the people uh, who helped to bring said person to power. And Shakespeare thought roughly that uh, it began with bitterly factionalized party politics, uh, intransigently locked. Uh, against each other that would help to give rise, he thought, to uh, fraudulent populism. And the populism would in turn uh, enable the rise of an unscrupulous demagogue with no respect for existing institutions uh, or norms or laws. Uh, and that person, uh, he thought, um, would uh, be allowed somehow what is not normally norm, uh, normatively allowed, for example, open lying without consequences, uh, or impulsive decisions fueled by narcissism or grotesque bullying. Uh, but that was part, as I say, of a large uh, a question that concerned him for much of his career. And I will just read you little bits of the book to give you a sense of what emerged actually only for me, as is always the case in my uh, experience writing books that the that the large design the plot of the book uh, is not something I know very completely when I start uh, but emerges in the course of writing and in this case the writing consisted of going back I started I confess in a rather crude way by just doing a concordance search for the word tyrant or cognates of the word tyrant and just looking through Shakespeare's plays very carefully to see uh, because that was the term, the, the term of art, as it were, in uh, the period uh, for a catastrophic leader. Um, it was a tricky uh, term of art. I don't think I say this in, but I should tell you in advance, I don't say this in, in what I'm going to read you, but that from the time of, of uh, Henry VIII, uh, Queen Elizabeth's father, uh, there were already uh, regulations which were never annulled passed that said uh, that it said 
that calling the ruler a tyrant uh, was a treasonous act. Uh, so that that um, the, the the current ruler, you couldn't call the current ruler a tyrant without committing treason, and also that it was a treasonable offense. They, the regulation said, "quote to compass or imagine the death of the king," to compass or imagine the death of the king. So they they knew as well as we that you can't control what people imagine, uh, but they put it there so that they could do anything they wanted with someone who protested uh, to openly uh, the existing government. Um, so here's, what I, here's how I begin the book. From the early 1590s at the beginning of his career all the way through to its end, Shakespeare grappled again and again with a deeply unsettling question. How is it possible for a whole country to fall into the hands of a tyrant? Quote, a king rules over willing subjects, end quote wrote the influential 16th century Scottish scholar George Buchanan, quote, a tyrant over unwilling, end quote. The institutions of a free society are designed to ward off those who would govern, as Buchanan put it, quote, not for their country, but for themselves, who take account not of the public interest, but of their own pleasure, end quote. Under what circumstances, Shakespeare asked himself, do such cherished institutions, seemingly deeply rooted and impregnable, suddenly prove fragile? Why do large numbers of people knowingly accept being lied to? How does a figure like Richard III or Macbeth ascend to the throne? Such a disaster, Shakespeare suggested, could not happen without widespread complicity. His plays probe the psychological mechanisms that lead a nation to abandon its ideals and even its self-interest. Why would anyone, he asked himself, be drawn to a leader manifestly unsuited to govern? someone dangerously impulsive, or conniving, or indifferent to the truth? Why in some circumstances does evidence of mendacity, crudeness, or cruelty serve not as a fatal disadvantage, but as an allure, attracting ardent followers? Why do otherwise proud and self-respecting people submit to the sheer effrontery of a tyrant, his sense that he can get away with saying and doing anything he likes? And that is a, a question that Shakespeare answered in a number of different ways, thinking of the problem in di from different perspectives in the course of his whole career. Uh, and I won't have time to, uh, by any means, to talk about all of these, but I'll give you a glimpse of a few of them, uh, starting with a very early Shakespeare play, uh, a play uh, in which he depicts from one of the Henry VI uh, cycle, early Shakespeare histories, uh, the place in which he uh, really began his career, um, in which he depicts a situation in which a, a sinister, uh, noble plotter, uh, York, tries to create chaos by funding, in effect, we would say funding, uh, supporting a, a lower class uh, rebellion. She doesn't expect or intend to, to succeed, but he thinks it'll cause enough disorder to destabilize uh, the realm. And the mob uh, that he uh, releases, the mob gathering just on outside London and Blackheath, is rallied by someone named Jack Cade. 
Cato proves himself to be an effective demagogue, the master of voodoo economics. And I quote Cade, There shall be in England seven halfpenny loaves sold for a penny. The three-hoop pot shall have ten hoops, and I will make it a felony to drink small beer. All the realm shall be in common. When the crowd roars its approval, Cade sounds exactly like a modern stump speaker. I thank you, good people. The absurdity of these campaign promises is not an impediment to their effectiveness. On the contrary, Cade keeps producing demonstrable falsehoods about his origins and making wild claims about the great things he will do, and the crowds eagerly swallow them. To be sure, his neighbors know that Cade is a congenital liar. I quote Cade, my mother was a Plantagenet, the butcher who's in the crowd. I knew her well. She was a midwife. <laughs> Cade, my mother descended of the Lacy's. Butcher says, she was indeed a peddler's daughter and sold laces. Uh, Cade's absurd assertions of aristocratic lineage should make him seem merely a buffoon. Far from a wealthy highborn magnet, he is little more than a vagabond. I've seen him whipped three market days together, whispers one of his supporters. But strangely enough, this knowledge does not diminish the mob's faith. Cade himself, for all we know, may think that what he is so obviously making up as he goes along will actually come to pass. Drawing on an indifference to the truth, shamelessness, and hyperinflated self-confidence, the loudmouth demagogue is entering a fantasy land. When I am king, as king I shall be. And he invites his listeners to enter the same magical place with him. In that space, two and two do not have to equal four. And the most recent assertion need not remember the contradictory assertion that was made a few seconds earlier. In ordinary times, when a public figure is caught in a lie or simply reveals blatant ignorance of the truth, his standing is diminished. But these are not ordinary times. If a dispassionate bystander were to point out all of Cade's grotesque distortions, mistakes, and downright lies, the crowd's anger would light on the skeptic and not on Cade. Famously, it's at the end of one of Cade's speeches that someone in the crowd shouts, and this is the only line from Henry VI that you will know, the first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. <laughs> Shakespeare knew that the line would get laughs, as it has done for the last four centuries. It releases the current of aggression that swirls around the whole enterprise of the law, directed not merely to at venal attorneys, but at all the agents of the vast social apparatus that compels the honoring of contracts, the payment of debts, the fulfillment of obligations. We blithely imagine that the crowd wants such responsible qualities in its leaders, but the scene suggests otherwise. What it wants instead is permission to ignore commitments, to violate promises, and to break the rules. That in this destruction, the common people would lose even the very limited power they possess, the power expressed when they voted in parliamentary elections, does not matter. For Cade's, Cade's ardent supporters, the time-honored institutional system of representation is worthless. It has, they feel, never represented them. Their inchoate wish is to tear up all the agreements, cancel all the debts, and wreck all the existing institutions. Better to have the law come from the mouth of the dictator, who may claim to be a Plantagenet, but whom they recognize as one of their own. The masses are perfectly aware that he's a liar, but venal, cruel, and self-serving though he is, he succeeds in articulating their dream. 
henceforward all things shall be in common. Uh, there's much more to say in this vein. It's uh, one of Shakespeare's great early uh, creations, but I will just uh, move on away from Cain, who, of course, when the time comes, uh, is, is shoved aside and eventually uh, killed uh, grubbing for food in, a, uh, in Kent in a householder's garden. Uh, and instead, I, I'll turn to the character who is finally unleashed uh, by the disorder in England and that uh, Shakespeare depicts, the civil war and disorder that Shakespeare depicts in the War of the Roses. It's not the f person who originally, uh, who at the end of the, th the third of the, uh, of the trilogy takes power, uh, but his brother waiting in the wings, his younger brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester. And the point here is that in addition to the disorder, the populism, fraudulent populism, and the chaos that's released, uh, there's someone who will emerge who has the personality, the character, uh, that can take advantage of this situation. It's not, in fact, the Duke of York who originally uh, unleashes Jack Cade. It's not Cade himself. It's not Edward who comes to the throne um, at the end of the Wars of the Roses. It's, it's someone else. So I'll just read you a little bit of this from a different chapter about this particular kind of person. Shakespeare's Richard III uh, brilliantly develops the personality features um, that already glimpsed uh, in the Henry VI trilogy, the limitless self-regard, the law-breaking, the pleasure in inflicting pain, the compulsive desire to dominate. He's pathologically narcissistic and supremely arrogant. He has a grotesque sense of entitlement, never doubting that he can do whatever he chooses. He loves to bark orders and to watch underlings scurry to carry them out. He expects absolute loyalty, but he's incapable of gratitude. The feelings of others mean nothing to him. He has no natural grace, no sense of shared humanity, no decency. He's not merely indifferent to the law. He hates it and takes pleasure in breaking it. He hates it because it gets in his way and because it stands for a notion of the public good that he holds in contempt. He divides the world into winners and losers. The winners arouse his regard insofar as he can use them for his own ends. The losers arouse only his scorn. The public good is something only losers like to talk about. What he likes to talk about, as he says repeatedly in the play, is winning. He has always had wealth. He was born into it and makes ample use of it. But though he enjoys having what money can get him, it is not what most excites him. What excites him is the joy of domination. He's a bully. Easily enraged, he strikes out at anyone who stands in his way. He enjoys seeing others cringe, tremble, or wince with pain. He's gifted at detecting weakness and deft at mockery and insult. These skills attract followers who are drawn to the same cruel delight even if they cannot have it to his unmatched degree. Though they know that he's dangerous, the followers help him advance to his goal, which is the possession of supreme power. His possession of power includes the domination of women, but he despises them far more than he desires them. Sexual conquest excites him, but only for the endlessly reiterated proof that he can have anything he likes. He knows 
that those he grabs hates him. For that matter, once he succeeded in seizing the control that so attracts him in politics as in sex, he knows that virtually everyone hates him. At first, that knowledge energizes him, making him feverishly alert to rivals and conspiracies, but it soon begins to eat away at him and exhaust him. Sooner or later, he's brought down. He dies unloved and unlamented. He leaves behind only wreckage. It would have been better had Richard III never been born. Uh, but he wouldn't, no matter what his personality, and it's an extraordinary personality, also full of, of uh, a peculiar, perverse seductiveness, a seductiveness that we're somehow invited to participate in, he wouldn't have uh, risen, as Shakespeare goes out of his way to show, without uh, a great many uh, people to help him. And in another chapter, I talk about those who do help him. And again, if you'll permit me, I'll read a little bit of that, but keeping my eye on the time so we can have plenty of time for questions. Um, Richard's villainy is readily apparent to almost everyone. There's no deep secret about his cynicism, cruelty, and treacherousness, no glimpse of anything redeemable in him, and no reason to believe that he could ever govern his country effectively. The question the play explores, then, is how such a person actually attained the English throne. The achievement, Shakespeare suggests, depended on a fatal conjunction of diverse but equally self-destructive responses from those around him. Together, those responses amount to a whole country's collective failure. I think, actually, just uh, for time, I won't read out uh, the, the, the character types, uh, but just say that, that there are different groups that Shakespeare gives names to, char they, they're characters in the play. There are a small number of people who were genuinely fooled by him. They tend to be small children, though not all small children are fooled uh, by him. Uh, then there are those who are frightened by him, and with good reason, because he's actually someone who can uh, who has followers around, armed followers uh, with him, and who can unleash uh, violence, who, who can encourage uh, the violence, don't uh, move, or, uh, or, or I'll, he says, uh, uh, I'll make a corpse of him that disobeys. Uh, he's ca perfectly capable of saying things like that. Uh, but then there are other ones who are in some ways more interesting. There are people in the play who seem to forget what they already know. They, so Shakespeare depicts conversations in which they talk to each other and they acknowledge what a ghastly character he is and how wretched and dangerous. And then a moment later, they're uh, talking to him as if things were normal, as if they actually have forgotten or as if they've normalized what is not normal. Because Shakespeare uh, depicts a situation in which it's actually extremely tempting for psychological and for political and social reasons simply to normalize. You feel better when you normalize, when you think that it's actually okay. Uh, and then related to those characters are ones who have a, a kind of inner trust that the basic norms will hold, that this can't be going in the direction it seems to be going, and that, that actually the things that have held the society together, the, not just the laws, but the communal judgments and the collective 
moral values that are sometimes stretched but basically stay intact, that they'll be of sufficient tensile strength to hold the uh, society together. Uh, these characters uh, are often among the ones who are, are killed off very quickly uh, in uh, the, the play. Uh, and there are others who are not deceived, don't normalize and don't forget, but think that they can take advantage of the rise of Richard. They know exactly how awful he is. They don't forget it. Uh, but they are on board uh, to take advantage. And those are many. Their names are Catesby and Ratcliffe and Buckingham. I mean, there are groups of them, a group of them. Shakespeare explores uh, them uh, in very interesting ways. They also eventually, not all of them, but many of them go down, sometimes quickly in the way Hastings does, sometimes uh, more slowly in the way that Buckingham does. Uh, but they, they represent a particular type of person. Each of these characters, they're only called characters with names in the play, is also a kind of sociological category in Shakespeare, which he's extremely thoughtful about. And then, there, of course, there are lots of those who simply carry out orders. There are those who are on the stage, and if, if they're told to uh, cut off Hastings' head, they go off and cut off Hastings' head, or uh, told to, to uh, imprison um, uh, Richard's uh, poor, pathetic, not, but not so pathetic because he was also complicit himself, brother, they do that. Or to turn over the prisoner to the, the, the killers, they do that. Or the killers themselves, they do that. There are people, there are always people in a society, Shakespeare thought, who would carry out the orders uh, of the person in charge. And then there's finally, in some sense, the most peculiar group, uh, not the group that makes love to the employment the way the killers do, uh, but there's also the audience, because the truth is that R Richard III, which was Shakespeare's fantastic breakthrough play, printed uh, half a dozen times in his own lifetime, hugely popular, as we know from allusions to, uh, to the play. It works because we love Richard. We love the disorder he causes. We love his rise. We love the bullying. We identify with it. We take pleasure in it. We're seduced by it. Uh, we're seduced by it, and then Shakespeare designs the play very cunningly so that toward the end, sometime around Act Four, it begins to curdle and seem extremely unpleasant. Uh, but not till late in the play, because Shakespeare is alert in this play to something that he explored uh, elsewhere in his career, to how risky uh, the theater is how powerful it is. Um, and he associates theatricality, strangely enough, given his fact that he grew up and lived in a monarchical system with elections. There were elections, of course, parliamentary elections in Shakespeare's time, but the king was not elected. But Shakespeare focuses in, uh, in Richard III. Richard III finally comes to power by election, uh, which is a very strange idea. And then he comes back to it in the course of his career multiple times, the idea of, of uh, monarchical election, as if the election, idea of election uh, interested him because it seemed to him in some sense related to the gifts that he himself had as a brilliant master of rhetorical uh, devices, as a potential uh, for moving crowds around, pleasing them, uh, getting them to move in particular directions. And he explores this brilliantly in Julius Caesar, in Antony's uh, famous oration, 
to the crowd. He explores it in different, very different spirit in a play like Othello. He's quite interested in the power of the theater and in the dangerous power of theatricality. Um, so I talk about that in uh, my book, and I also uh, talk about other moments in which Shakespeare tries to think how short of civil war can you escape from this once it happens. So in Julius Caesar, of course, he tries to think of it in terms of an idealist who uh, decides to assassinate the potential tyrant before he arises to power, but Shakespeare concluded, at least in that play, that that was a very big mistake because it only hastened the thing that you thought you were going to try to prevent uh, by eliminating the, uh, killing the serpent in its shell, as uh, Brutus thinks he's doing, uh, but only actually uh, hastens the ruin of the Republic that he thinks he's trying to, that he is trying to uh, defend. Uh, or in other, in other plays, Shakespeare thinks about what happens when a ruler is legitimately in power, hasn't arisen through the way Macbeth does or the way, the way Brutus fears Caesar will do, but is in power legitimately but behave, begins to behave increasingly insanely. What happens then, as in uh, King Lear uh, or in The Winter's Tale? And there, too, Shakespeare explores how difficult it is when the, when the person in power behaves irrationally, how difficult it is once he's in power to... Uh, do anything about it. Um, and we could talk about those um, situations in Shakespeare uh, as well. Um, but I think that I will, uh, so as not to be so melancholy and, gl and, and grim, uh, I will uh, talk about, uh, about the rays of hope uh, in Shakespeare. Um, not only the race of hope in his own art, because he did, for all of his skepticism about his own art, he also used his art, I think, as a kind of, of um, moral uh, exploration in a dangerous world, a world like the ones I described in Iran or East Germany and, and worse, where you could uh, get in tremendous trouble for openly criticizing regime, where you could walk, find yourself walking into an embassy and, and being dismembered. Uh, and Shakespeare knew that very, very well, lived in a world much m more prone to do that uh, than our own world uh, now is. So he found, but he found ways, uh, remarkable ways, to speak openly within uh, his theater. He found a way, as I write, to say what he needed to say. He managed to have someone stand up on stage and tell 2,000 listeners, some of whom were government agents, that, quote, a dog's obeyed in office, end quote. The rich get away with what's brutally punished in the poor. Quote, plate sins with gold, his character continued, continues, and the strong lance of justice hurtless breaks. Arm it in rags, and a pygmy straw does pierce it, end quote. If you said words like these at a tavern, you stood a good chance of having your ears cut off. But day after day they were spoken in public, and the police were never called. Why not? Because the person who spoke them was King Lear in his madness. Uh, and Shakespeare devised uh, lots of ways, which I explore in the book, to, to do things like that, to do things that couldn't elsewhere be done in, in his society. Uh, and then he was also not without hope. He thought that the way forward was not assassination, 
a desperate measure that, in his view, usually brought about the very thing it was most attempting to prevent. Rather, as he imagined toward the end of his career, and I haven't talked about this, but I think uh, in a way for me that one of the big surprises of my book was to reach Coriolanus and realize how Shakespeare was thinking in that difficult and strange play back across his whole career to what could be done in uh, to prevent truly catastrophic consequences. He imagined toward the end of his career that the best hope lay in the sheer unpredictability of collective life, its refusal to march in lockstep to any one person's orders. The incalculable number of factors constantly in play make it impossible for an idealist or a tyrant, a Brutus or a Macbeth, to remain securely in charge of the course of events, or to see, as Lady Macbeth dreams she does, the future in the instant. As a playwright, Shakespeare strikingly embraced the unpredictab this unpredictability. He wrote plays that intertwined multiple plots, jumbled together kings and clowns, routinely violated generic expectations, and conspicuously ceded control of interpretation to actors and audiences. There is, in this theatrical practice, an underlying trust that an extremely diverse, random body of spectators will ultimately work things out. Shakespeare's contemporary Ben Jonson once floated the fantasy that the members of the audience should be permitted to assess a play according to how much they paid for their seats. <laughs> quote, it shall be lawful, this is from Bartleby Ferret, quote, it shall be lawful for any man to judge his sixpenworth, his twelvepenworth, pennyworth, in other words, twelvepennyworth, so to his eighteen pence, two shillings, half a crown, to the value of his place, depending on how much you've paid. Nothing could be further from Shakespeare's evident conviction that everyone in the theater has an equal right to form an opinion and that the results in the aggregate, however messy, will finally confirm the success or failure of the enterprise. A comparable conviction seems to underlie the depiction in Coriolanus of the city's narrow escape from tyranny, an escape that emerges from a confused tangle of causes, the autocratic hero's psychological instability, his mother's persuasive power, the small measure of agency conferred upon the people, the behavior of the voters and their elected leaders. The playwright knew that it's easy to become cynical about these leaders and to despair about the all-too-human men and women who place their trust in them. The leaders are often compromised and corruptible. The crowd is often foolish, ungrateful, easily misled by demagogues, and slow to understand where its real interests lie. There are periods, sometimes extended periods, during which the cruelest motives of the basest people seem to be triumphant. But Shakespeare believed that the tyrants and their minions would ultimately fall, brought down by their own viciousness and by a popular spirit of humanity that could be suppressed but never completely extinguished. The best chance for the recovery of collective decency lay, he thought, in the political action of ordinary citizens. That's the amazing, very strange uh, message of, strange for the early 17th century of Coriolanus. He never lost sight of the people who steadfastly remained silent when they were exhorted to shout their support for the tyrant, or the servant who tried to stop his vicious master from torturing a prisoner, or the hungry citizens who demanded economic justice. And then I end my book with, simply with a quote from Coriolanus, what is the city but the people?
Now I'm going to stop and take your questions uh, and comments, objections, uh, remarks, and so forth and so on. Thank you very much for your patience.